So I saw some news this morning about Alua Toyin Salu, a 19-year-old and Black Lives Matter activist who took to Twitter to describe getting sexually assaulted just a week ago. And today, she was found dead in Tallahassee, Florida. And just a week and a half ago before that, Tony McDade, a transgender Black man, was murdered by a policeman who was responding to a call about a stabbing. And multiple witnesses saw the police force open fire on McDade without identifying themselves as law enforcement. So most of the world sees this chain of news as the latest heartbreaking situation. A domino of sorts that tumbled after 46-year-old George Floyd was heartlessly murdered. But this is so, so much more than that. This is and has been reality. And the world reality is so relative, so different from one experience to the other. And that's why today I've asked three special guests to talk about their reality. And Kirika Madani, PJ Bastiani, and Curtis Graves. So what am I doing here? And why am I recording this podcast? And that is a completely valid question. So I'm here mainly to pass along questions that you guys had last week. As a 25-year-old Asian American woman, I think that's important to mention because I am discovering right along with you guys, trying to navigate this landscape and most definitely messing up as well. First up, I want to introduce one of my closest friends that I met in San Francisco, NK. She recently got featured by makeup company Bite Beauty. You may have heard of it. And she explained her situation so beautifully and vulnerably and how it is like to be a Black woman in America. I just wanted to get on this and be very honest with how I've been feeling the past few weeks. It's been really hard. I feared not only for my life, but for my little brothers and sisters' lives. And unfortunately, we live in fear that something is going to happen to us. It doesn't matter all the dreams we have, everything we aspire to be. It feels like at any moment, everything can be taken away from us. And I'm speaking on this and being as vulnerable as I've ever been in my life because I'm truly hurting and I know so many people are hurting as well. Black lives do matter. I'm NK. I am a Seattle native. I've lived in San Francisco for seven years now. I went to college here as well. I am um, an African-American woman, a Black woman. This racial inequality we're experiencing in this modern day environment, I think it's just really important to take a look at personal accounts of how this is affecting the people who are in your life because... You care about those people, right? And so you should want to hear their stories. You should want to be there for them in any way that you can. Check in with them, but also make sure that you are fighting right alongside with them. And speaking about fighting alongside people that you care about, something you mentioned to me while we were talking the other day was that you had to talk to friends about their silence after the George Floyd protests and still do. So I wanted to ask, how did you feel seeing people that you called close, posting and going about everything in the way that seemed normal? What thoughts run through your mind when you don't see that support? That was really, really painful. 
seeing some of the friends who call me some of like their closest friends or even my best friends um, were very silent um, while, you know, they religiously would watch my stories and just seeing them watch it move on, but also posting, you know, their own life. And that just felt like I was not important to to them. Actions speak way louder than words, as we all know. And the action that those individuals took during that time felt like a slap in the face bringing these conversations to those individuals. It was very touchy. It was very uncomfortable. I just texted these individuals saying, hey, I'm really shocked that I haven't heard from you. I'm going through something right now. The world is going through something right now that is directly affecting me and who I am and my background. These individuals all took it upon themselves to immediately say, hey, you're absolutely right. Like, no, none of them uh, got defensive. None of them started pointing fingers or like lashing out. I observed a immediate change in their behavior. What I want to really emphasize is that this journey for me, like speaking up and speaking out and getting people to listen and not just listen, to share and to also advocate for me and help me advocate my truth and my story. So for the people who aren't familiar with your story or read your blog post or don't know you, you speak a lot about shopping in stores, speaking about prejudice and dolls that never looked like you growing up. You talk about being both a minority and being a woman, but also for the color of your skin, which is what they would call double jeopardy. Can you shed some light on the things that we would never dream or think of living in a world of double jeopardy? A quote that I like absolutely resonate with, the most disrespected woman in America is a black woman. The most unprotected person in America is a black woman. And the most neglected person in America is the black woman. To feel disrespected, unprotected, and neglected That's just, you know, like a triple punch. (sighs) It's been a really tough pill to swallow. Not saying that I'm accepting that because I feel that my whole battle and my whole goal in life is to change that narrative. Growing up, seeing dolls that were all white, seeing prejudice happen right before my eyes as as a tween, um, seeing that in workspaces, I would get talked over constantly. I would get dismissed constantly. It's so painful. Do you think there's also a space where like Black women are tokenized or also like fetishized in the wrong ways in society as well, on top of being Mm -hmm. neglected, unprotected? And what was the third one again? Disrespected. Let's talk about disrespect because... (laughs) The the disrespect that I have experienced as a Black woman is so extreme and really disgusting. I I feel disrespected by men who catcall me when I'm taking a walk across the street or going on a run in the park, um, who have stopped me while I'm minding my own business and trailed me in their cars. There is another level of fear that comes with that. They don't even care that I'm college educated. They don't even care that I am intelligent and eloquent. They don't care. You know, it is 
um, a lot about that tokenization. I've been told so many times, wow, this is the first time I've made out with a black woman. Um, this is the first time, you know, this, this, and this with a black woman. So I think that's a really, really great question and something that I'm actually really happy that I spoke on that because I think I really never unpacked that. And that's always been something like very deeply seated in how I feel like I'm viewed as a black woman. Well, thank you so much for all of your vulnerability, your strength, and just allowing all of us as listeners, myself included, to bear witness for even a short amount of time. I know that we're remotely recording right now, but it feels like we're in the same room. If anyone wants to follow NK on Instagram, her handle is N-K-B-A-Y-B-A-Y-Y. The next guest is here, though, waiting in the wings, and we've got none other than Curtis Graves. Think you the only one I want to check on. Ever since you woke to that medicine, you've been slept on. Fancy over tears and depression, you put your dress on. Revel on the week and forget whatever was stressed so on. Text message memories, what the fuck was your ex on? I'm doing well. I'm definitely enjoying the sunlight. I think the sun been shining almost every day this week. So that's uh, lifted my spirits. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's crazy time. It's, it's starting to turn around a little bit. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. And I met you, I want to say three years ago, two years ago. Three now. I mean, 2017 is when I moved to, uh, yeah, that's when we started our program. And you're still in Chicago, right? What area are you in? Further south than downtown, but not quite as south as like Bridgeport and um, Bronzeville, High Park, anything. So it's around like 17th, 18th, 16th. I'm so bad at directions. I feel like I'm not going to know exactly where that is. But how was it growing up in Jersey as a black man? Our cultures intertwined a lot back back in South Jersey, and then of course a bunch of white people as well. So, um, kind of interesting because back home, most of us were at least most of the people I hung out with uh, were poor. We dealt with a lot of uh, financial struggle, and classism was a huge thing back then because it was like my white friend. I mean, he's on welfare too, and my my uh, Puerto Rican friend is on welfare too. So, I think I got a pretty good experience of uh, accepting all types of people and and just having that kind of naturally come to me. Would you say that like Chicago is different than the Jersey diversity? Speaking about how every big city kind of has like its quote unquote good parts and then right outside of that or, or right, you know, proximate to that would be some of the worst parts. And my friend Nathan was like, yeah, but Chicago is different because if you live in Lincoln Park or River North, like you don't ever have to acknowledge what goes on on the south side or the west side. Like you can actually avoid that your entire life and never you can never go further south than like Logan or something, right? Like, yeah, it's it's definitely interesting because it's so segregated. So I did want to talk more about your music because I know that you write poetry and then you translate that into lyrics and your rapper. And your Instagram bio is the Langston Hughes of rap. Langston Hughes is one of my biggest inspirations, as well as Dr. Seuss and James Baldwin and Maya Angelou, like all of these amazing writers, these are the people who I want to be compared to one day. Why don't we study Jay-Z lyrics the way we study Robert Frost poems or Emily Dickinson? Because I understand, I'm listening to Jay-Z rap and I'm like, yo, he just rapped a triple entendre 
or like his whole entire verse is an extended metaphor. Like that's brilliant writing. So I never understood why we didn't emphasize those as much as we did the traditional poets, even though rap is rhythm and poetry. So uh, yeah, that's that's really where the name comes from. Is that Langston Hughes is somebody who I look up to a lot, and I want to be compared to to those people one day and just be. I want to be the greatest writer ever. As a whole, how can the music industry, and how can we as music listeners, as Spotify listeners, as people who go on Apple Music, how can we be better about seeing and being aware of Black artists and those type of roots that you talk about? Does it come down to being better about acknowledgement, such as the fact that EDM um, inspiration draws a lot from the heart of Detroit, or does it look like listening to more Black artists, giving them more streams? What do you see that as? Yeah, I think I think it's a little bit of both. Elvis is like unavoidable, right? Like somebody, he, he was super talented, right? We're not going to take away the fact that Elvis was great or that Eminem is amazing, but we also have to understand where Elvis came from. Like the reason Elvis got on what he did was because they were, I forget the guy's name, but they were looking for a white artist who could sing black songs like black people because it's easier to market to the world if you have a white guy doing it, right? That's something that we're always going to have to live with. But I love when when those artists acknowledge, like you ever hear Bruno Mars talk about how his music is, it comes from black people. Like he's not trying to take credit as if he invented this. Russ, once again, is amazing with that. He always talks about how I'm a white guy in hip hop, so I'm inherently seen as quote like a guest, right? But Russ acknowledges, yo, these people, like when DJ Cool Herc and all these people started hip hop in New York, this was black people. This this was this was music for us to speak about what's going on in our communities. And every era, it may take a different turn. Like in the 80s, when NWA came out, that was like, it shocked the world. But they were speaking about their reality and their situations. That is something that I feel like we need to continue to acknowledge because I hate, I hate it when there's the little white kid or, or whoever, whoever, right, who's profiting off of black people's art but won't acknowledge where that art comes from. I'm not mad at getting the money doing it, but just let's acknowledge where it comes from. I think for supporting black artists directly, one, one thing I love is uh, local shows. There are a lot of people who you can help support. So Far Sounds is an amazing. I don't know if you've, you've been to So Far shows. I've been to a few, um, and they're always so like raw, so yeah. intimate, and you're sitting like a few feet away from the artist. Is it harder for a Black artist to kind of climb the rungs of the music industry? Because at the top, we see, you know, Jay-Z, we see the mm-hmm. Beyonce's, we see the Drake's. Um, and then we think, okay, well, we do love Black music. Like, these people have climbed up this far. But, you know, starting from the very bottom, is it just like a really hard process that we all don't know about? In this colorist world we live in, you know, whiteness is easier to market, of course. We see it, I'll say a lot. And I, honestly, I think hip hop does a, a better job than a lot of other genres. But you look at r and B. I I mean, the amount of dark skinned women who are extremely talented that get overlooked by for the, the light skinned artists who can't really sing, but she she looks traditionally cute, right? As, as for what the mainstream may say, she's easier to market. She has, you know, a little curly hair. We see that all the time. And even, um, and this is not to take away from anybody because I think like Adele's Adele, right? Adele's absolutely incredible, right? She is insane. But I also love Jasmine Sullivan and people like that. And I, I wonder, I do wonder why sometimes those artists aren't as big or, or like Sam Smith, amazing. But Tank can do everything Sam Smith can do. I don't know. I'm, I can't speak for anything behind the scenes, but just on a, on a general raw talent level, like these 
there's no separation to me, in my opinion, right? But at the same time, I do think what it kind of comes down to is, is finding your way to appeal. Like, yeah, it may be harder. It's tough as a black person doing anything in this country. However, I do think it's just from a, a self-accountability standpoint, your job is not to try to get Eminem's fans or your job is not to try to get Russ's fans or to try to get this person's fans. Your job is to make the music that you want to make, right? Continue to work on your craft so that your music improves. Like you want to make steady progression in the quality, continue to make progress. And it's your job to speak to the people who look for what you do versus trying to appeal to the whole world and hoping a bunch of people catch on. Uh, finding your niche is so important. That's honestly something I'm, I'm diligently working on. I kind of had to take a step back a little bit because um, I, I, I'm, I'm still finding my best target audience, right? The people who look for what I do versus trying to create a catchy hit that sounds like whoever else is on the charts, right? That's not who I am. So yeah, I think, yeah, of course, we're, we're always going to have those hurdles. And I will say black people are resilient. We're persistent. We're very hard to beat. Um, and if we want something, we will go get it. So I don't doubt that from any, any of my people. Uh, but yeah, I mean, finding, finding target market is super important and really cater to those people who, who are diehards and look for what you do. And you'll have fans forever. Thank you for all your time and as well as your creative craft, Curtis. And for anyone who wants to find him, his name is Kurt Summers on Spotify. Next up, we've got PJ Bastiani. He's a community leader in San Francisco. He's a project manager at the Village Project. And let me tell you, I've seen it myself. This guy really knows his stuff. I met him through NK at a holiday work party, and we've been hanging ever since. So can you go into what your roots are? Where did you grow up? Um, give us a little bit of a background about you. I um, come from uh, black and Mexican roots. My dad's side is uh, African-American. My mom's side is Mexican-American. I grew up, sister, um, we have, you know, same mom, different dads, but her dad is also black. So her and I do share the the black skin, black sheep dilemma of being black in a Mexican family or being Mexican in a black family. Do you experience any cultural clash between the Latino um, and Black culture that you grew up with? Or are those two enmeshed for the most part? Growing up in San Jose, for the most part, I was a lot more comfortable with my Mexican style. And in terms of the family house parties, going to quinceañeras, going to local street fairs and festivals, and you'd see mariachi, that aspect of the culture I'm very familiar with. However, I never learned Spanish because, you know, my dad doesn't speak Spanish. So my mom never felt it was like comfortable to speak Spanish in the home. Unfortunately for, for me and my sister, we, we didn't get the opportunity to be connected to our Latino culture through the language, which it is kind of painful sometimes. Some of my cousins would say the N-word and would make me feel very uncomfortable. And I would sometimes try to call them out on it. But they would almost feel entitled to say it because but would also kind of pick apart the fact that because I'm mixed, I'm not fully black. So it doesn't count, which is just messed up to tell a kid. But from second grade to fifth grade, I was pretty much the only black kid, maybe like the one other black kid was my friend, Daniel. <laughs> and me and him were like kind of peas in a pod. 
we had no idea of how to even approach tapping into our black culture. Do you remember Flavor of Love and I Love New York, The Real World, when it, you know, those first couple seasons, like, you know, that my sister would be watching a lot of that. My cultural awareness would be seeing black people on screen, either acting like the white people that they were with, or they, you know, would be kind of tokenized because you'd have a gang of white folks on screen and you'd have to have the one to two black people that'd be like the, the, the kind of buff kind of party black guy. And then kind of the black girls, usually she's got like braids or something. Right. And they just got to throw them in there. Um, you know, and, and it didn't, it didn't really give me a lot of power at all. I had no black power to me. Yeah, that's really interesting that there is this unseen dynamic of power. And is there anything else that you grappled with at this time dealing with those sort of powers? And I know that you grew up embracing those Latino roots more, but what made you feel as though you were closer to your blackness? When I was in the eighth grade was when Barack Obama was elected president. And I remember taking some half the day off on inauguration day. And I remember watching the inauguration with him. And once Barack started to say, I, Barack Hussein Obama, do solemnly swear to, you know, protect and uphold the constitution in the United States of America. I just, my dad stood up, held his fist high in the air and he started crying because after Obama was sworn in, he told me that he remembers stories of his father having to go to the voting booths in the South with a shotgun so that people wouldn't try to oppress you know, him and dissuade him from letting his vote be heard. From then to now finally seeing a Black person being elected president, albeit a mixed Black person, but still... Black. And I think that was kind of the first time for me really being able to hold on to that freshman, sophomore, junior year. Well, particularly freshman year, I was the kid that had a nice, like, big little curly fro that all the girls wanted to touch it. And I would be like, oh, yeah, you can touch it. Go ahead. And And then when the guys would (laughs) want to touch it, I'd be like, no, fuck off, man. Don't touch my hair. (laughs) But this was a very, like, pivotal time because that's when I learned that just non-Black people have a fascination with Black hair. And then because I'm attending a private Catholic high school, there's a dress code. And evidently, there's a dress code about male hair, too. And I feel like it was designed for, like, you know, kind of hippie boys that like to have long hair and a ponytail or something. But the the rule at this time stipulated that uh, for males, your hair couldn't be longer than, like, two inches from your head or, like, longer than two inches down the back of your neck. But I realized in, you know, years later that, Black hair is really actually a statement and it could be taken. And I don't think I fully understood what it meant at the time, because for black people, I definitely started to be more active in other club stuff going on because I grew out of my shell a little bit. So I was supposed to, you know, get out of my shell at some point. But yeah, just crazy. Like all of these things just around black hair, just around my hair. I had very unique high school experiences that I feel like most other kids wouldn't even have to bat an eye about. 
for many, many years, we were told that our hair, our natural hair was not beautiful, that white hair, like long and elegant and flowy hair that you could just toss around in the wind, that that was beautiful. And that black male hair, again, nappy and out and natural was unprofessional. And I was what they call tenderheaded. And tenderheaded means when my hair is getting braided, I really, my hair is, my head, my literal actual scalp is very sensitive. And I feel every tug on a times 10 scale. And when I was getting my hair braided, my hands would be gripping the armrests of the chair. I'd be fighting back tears because my hair is getting pulled extremely hard and tied for two to three hours, sometimes longer. I remember one time, a couple times, it took like almost four hours for my hair to get braided up. Very painful and arduous and expensive experience. It'd be like $80 to get my hair braided every three to four weeks. But yeah, just crazy, like all of these things just around black hair, just around my hair. I had very unique uh, high school experiences that I feel like most other kids wouldn't even have to bat an eye about. Yeah, no, and I... I completely feel you on the breaking out of your shell thing. I mean, even from my experience, like when I first met you, I think you were a little bit more on the reserve side. But like once you get talking, it's like you become super, super, super extroverted and you are very, very well spoken. Um, and politicizing something such as hair is honestly so interesting to think about. And to police your hair, that reality that you've really been occupied in within your whole life um but it's something that someone like me doesn't experience um it's really important that we have these conversations and just speaking of community um you're diving more into carving out your own spaces in the city of san francisco i know you're a project manager at the village mm -hmm. project can you explain and go into what that is the mission of it and how you're involved and in the Fillmore district of San Francisco. On top of that, they organize four free community events every year. San Francisco Kwanzaa, San Francisco Mardi Gras, Grilling in the Mo, which is kind of like a summer kickoff, like free food event. And then uh, a senior moment, which is a, a senior prom for the 55 plus. And my boss, Miss Adrian Williams, has the mission of the Village Project is really to um, provide space for our youth because it takes a village to raise a child. That's really kind of the, actually like the motto of the Village Project. For me as the project manager, I feel like I, when it came to working with the youth, I would sometimes help pick them up, sometimes would pop in to do the homework time with them, read to them. Uh, sometimes would help take them to their activity time and, and like help bond with them, take them home. But that wasn't my everyday role because that also like picking up the food to take to the seniors, I would be sent to go do that because of everything I've told you earlier, all, you know, all of those years growing up and not really not having a hood, not having a community to claim because I've moved so much to now finally, you know, I can almost claim the San Francisco black community and it really it fills that part of my heart and of my soul to be able to do that because of everything I've told you earlier, all you know, all of those years growing up and not really not having a hood, not having a community to claim because I've moved so much to now finally, you know, I can almost claim the San Francisco black community. And it really it fills that part of my heart and of my soul to be able to do that. 
Thank you, PJ, for all of that insight. So we are short on time, and as we roll into the question room, I want to bring up the questions that you guys asked, DM'd, or submitted into the type form. So sorry in advance if I didn't get to your question today, but I will hopefully be addressing the rest separately in another post. So there are no dumb questions. Everyone is here to address them in a safe space. Let's get started. Thank you so much. Honestly, it seems as if like the first time you can see digitally, everyone is really on board with Black Lives Matter. And so a lot of the questions I have are very future oriented. And I know that some people who have not been as involved with the movement before, they don't really understand the cycle of how these protests work. And obviously people protest, not just to protest, they protest usually in response to events, tragic events happening. This one really good question I saw was, if a single demand is met, such as monthly police de-escalation training, but no other demands are conceded, Will Black Lives Matter mainstream support hit a lull again, resulting in another news cycle until the next tragic event happens? Obviously, that's not something that we want, but in your guys' experience and what you've seen, what do you guys think until all demands are met or do you think everything's going to like subside? I don't know, something about everything that's going on, like I feel happier that there's a lot of supporters, but like a deeper subconscious thought is that is this really the one that's going to make the change or is there going to still be that other one? The marches after the deaths have, I feel like that happened so much in the last decade that I almost feel so desensitized to believe that this could really be the, the time that the change is real. Um, and it, it kind of hurts to really uh, kind of place. Uh, and I, I really just find myself diving more into my work and not it's a very deep subconscious thought that of disbelief that that although the the, the scale of the protests and the movements is greater than ever before that just the system still will somehow flip the reset and reassert its own power until the next tragic death but that's that's just unfortunately where i my heart is right now I really empathize with what PJ said about the desensitization um, because I I feel that way a lot, but I also equally feel, unfortunately, in fear. And I know I talked about that in my blog post. Even with the progress that we are seeing, yes, you know, taking those little wins, I definitely stand by that and I agree with that 100%. I have had personal encounters with the police. Um, my little brother um, also has had personal encounters with the police and those things really do numb you in the midst of all of this. It's hard to really get on board and believe that we are not going to have another situation like this again. I'm so in fear that as much as I see this progress, I just want it to be a, a concrete and lasting change instead of a cycle, like you said, Selena, like a cycle. And then there's a new wave and a new wave. We don't need that. We need actual change. And I hope we get it. DJ sent me a post on Instagram. It was from the account Uberfax. And it says, in California, there are more required hours of training to become a barber than to become a police officer. And I just stopped. I was like, are you kidding? Like, that is insane. What? 1500 hours minimum of training to become a barber and only 664 hours less than half 
to become a police officer, to legally own a gun and to use on another human life. Let's just think it. Let's just let it sit in. I, I kind of want to um, go off of what NK was saying, because that I, that I I agree with that 100 percent like that, that fear of and almost like a, a deeply rooted despondence that you don't want to have like this black cloud over your perspective because you do want to be optimistic but you also understand the ugly reality of being black like i can speak for myself i've been getting harassed by police my entire life like i want to go too into depth but i remember being 12 years old with a basketball in my hand and they would harass me on the way home to my house on the other side of town i was jumped and robbed around the corner from my crib and i thought i was going to die that night when i was 15 i risked my life for my sister and we ended up making it out but um racist white guys uh, i've had so many instances of this fear it terrifies me. And, and I, there's certain precautions I take to try to avoid, quote unquote, that confrontation. But we see that even that is not enough. Sometimes you can be doing everything right, everything my mom taught me to do, and it still might not guarantee that I'll make it back home. And uh, so that, that fear is super real. And I mean, for what needs to change, like it, there's so much. And pretty much what I was saying before is that we have to overhaul the entire system. And that seems that that is very daunting. I think that's what scares me the most because it is like racism is America is America, right? We've created ourselves and it's like pillaging and rape and murder and conquesting. Like these things are inherent to America. And we, I mean, we still see instances of it. And yeah, I know uh, one thing is that we definitely have to first accept the ugly truth. I'm tired of hearing people act as if things don't exist or they say we're overreacting or we're, we're super sensitive. It's like, no, no, no this is our reality being of like, we have these legitimate fears. Um, we're not overreacting. We're not angry for nothing. We're angry because we're being knocked off like swine and livestock. Like we have a legitimate reason to be angry and we thought things would be different by now. Uh, education is huge. Kids are not taught. Like when I was 10 years old, I thought Columbus was a hero, right? I thought I didn't know anything about some of my ancestors and, and forefathers and, and mothers that really led the way. If it wasn't Rosa Parks or MLK or Jackie Robinson, you didn't hear too much about it. And our history is so much deeper than that. And I think that we should expose all children to this, not only black students, but everybody. Um, I actually just saw that New Jersey passed some type of bill or something where every kid has to have black history. Now, from now, from this point on, they have to experience some type of black history in school which I think helps. But once again, it's an entire system we have to overhaul because racism is not a bunch of people hating black people. It's a systematic like oppression that I, I don't even know how we can conquer it, honestly. And I, yeah, I'm with NK, like it's and, and PJ as well. It's scary and we have a long way to go. But I think those are two things that would have to happen. It's like education and then people in the belly of the beast need to speak up at the risk of maybe putting some things in jeopardy when it comes to career or advancement in their, in their industry. I know there's so many changes, right? Like there's systemic changes. There's not just that, but microaggressions that happen every day. There's so much change to be made. So what kind of change needs to happen first? And on top of that, what is the most important part of right now that needs to change? few days. But what will lead us in the right direction? What will skew us towards that change that will finally catch on? Yeah, Curtis. Yeah, I really um, appreciate what you said about the education part in relation to, you know, starting at the youth. I mean, they are the most impressionable, right? We all have had an experience in, in our lives, especially when we were younger, that 
the views of the world definitely had the biggest influence on us. What our parents told us what to do when our teachers taught us, all of that is very real and it feeds into how we grew up. And then in turn, we make our own decisions and views. There's a quote that I read on Instagram last week that it, and it said, you are responsible for becoming more ethical than the society you grew up in. I think that speaks volumes because a lot of people fall back and have the excuse and say, well, I grew up in a privileged white home. I've never experienced racism in my life. How do I contribute to this big picture? Oh, no, you really do. Because if you've been through that, that means that you really never batted an eye at the oppression of the Black community, which is unfortunate. But hey, now here's your chance to redeem yourself. What's happening around you in our world right now Everyone is stopping and finally taking a look at this and really zoning in on it. So this is your chance to put aside the excuses that you've carried on your entire life and start educating yourself. And I know you spoke to education as well. I think that's like super, super, super important. I felt like I was taught the bare minimum about Black history, like the bare minimum. We were kind of closed off from learning more about our history. It unfortunately has fed into where we all are right now, whites and blacks. Hearing about the New Jersey law, I I was like, wow, like just hearing you say that, I was like, okay, that's amazing. Like, I mean, yes. And like you said, like, that's not enough, but that's a starting point, which we will take. (laughs) And then the other thing I wanted to say is we all know how powerful the people upstairs are, like the, the legislators and the lawmakers, they are the ones who actually put law, like they, they sign the laws and like we have to abide by them, right? So we all need to make sure that we are registered in our state primary, in our presidential, please God, presidential primary, in order to elect change that will be lasting for years to come. The people who we elect, they're the ones who either will have our back or will have their own agenda to fight against us. Unfortunately, that is the society that we're in. Us as people, we do have the power. And I hate when people say, well, what is my vote going to do? Oh no, your vote's going to do a lot because the people with the power, like these governors, the mayors, they have so much power. So we need to elect the correct people who will be standing by us and fighting for us. Um, So yeah. Okay. Well, I definitely wanted to dive in on the history tip because this is like my life. I was, I was the nerdy kid that read history books during reading reading time back in elementary school. So what I've come to understand is that history has always been written by the victor and America has a very uh, nasty sense of washing its eyes out of its sins. And the reason I point this out is because in order to understand why certain things happen so deeply is to, you have to get to the root cause, right? Why? In my like black and Mexican family, why is the Mexican side saying Mexican lives matter in the midst of these protests, you know, almost in an ignorance of the tragedy of death of, of a man, right? But that goes back to Willie Lynch, where Willie Lynch was a um, master from, I believe, Europe, who came over to teach the American plantations how to control slaves. And the way that you do that is to create separation and to create 
some that have a higher amount of focus or benefit so that others feel jealous and will instead of looking to work together, they will despise one another and will be more inclined to stay in their place. And to understand why black people can just be killed indiscriminately in the streets, but whether by vigilantes or the police, is to understand that that mentality came from the slave hunting. When a slave runs away, you hire people to go chase them down, either cuff them and bring them back or kill them on sight. And that happened for over two centuries in this country. And that, you know, extended into the, the mentality of the early on KKK. Us as Black people, we're told that we're not special. We don't have a culture. We don't have something that we can hold on to that's powerful. There's Chinatown, there's Japantown, there's Little Italy and all these other great like cultural things and, and, and big traditions that happen on a national scale. But we're told as Black people in America that we don't have a culture to hold on to. When the truth is that our people were great in Africa well before the Europeans learned anything like how to paint like in the Renaissance. It was the Moors in Spain that started the Renaissance, but they will tell world history that, oh, uh, you know, after the Middle Ages was the Enlightenment and, and the Renaissance and all these great people in Italy did all this great, no, no, wait a damn minute. Black people have been great for centuries you know, in the greatness of those pyramids and, and, and tried to learn from that architecture to make, you know, the Parthenon. Oh, before the, the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans, all the people in the world were just stupid, like hunter-gatherers. And all of a sudden, you know, the ancient Greeks pop up and they're the smartest people in the world. That's, that's what I, what frustrates me so much. It's a very deep, blinding brainwashing of our people so that if you don't understand how how special you are, black boy, black girl, truly, then you are if you don't value your own life, then it gets only easier for the oppressors to keep your knee on our necks. The history and the great things of what our people have done have been washed away. So we're over here left thinking that we're not special when it is anything but. And I'll step off my soapbox. That was beautiful, yo. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm just in awe, man. I think one thing that was pretty disheartening for me, just uh, paying attention to things over the years, is that, like I said, I speak to my grandma so much about the civil rights movement and what her experience was like growing up in that day and age. And when you're in school, you learn about how Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks and all these people made such huge impacts. And then you get to 2020 and you realize that not much has changed. A lot has changed, but not as much as we thought would have changed by, you know, at this point. J. Cole has a line that I like a lot that says, uh, change is slow, always has been, always will be. And I think definitely kind of uh, depressing at times when I think that change is going to take a long time to fully enact because we don't need reform of the system. We need a complete overhaul of the system itself. Like there's no reforming something that dates back to Jamestown. And when we first came in this country and well, we, but, you know, when they first came to this country and, and took it from the Native Americans and then brought us over here, uh, this is deeply rooted. So the whole entire system has to be overhauled. Um, but I do think it's important to to appreciate the small wins we've had. Uh, like, you know, my grandmother back in the day, they couldn't always vote. They got the right to vote. They couldn't always hold certain positions in, in office. And, and we've gotten that not as far as we would like to be right now. But I think it's important to focus on those small things and understand that we have to keep applying pressure 
It's not going to be overnight. It's going to be tough. There's going to be more cases like this one, unfortunately, because the system we live in is super archaic and it's, it's deeply ingrained into America's entire existence. Uh, but I do, I do have hope for my people because I, I, I know we're resilient. Uh, we're hungry and we're ready for a change. And that to me is what is super important is to stay persistent, even when the quote unquote, the, the hype or the height of, of this movement dies down. We have to remember there's a lot of black people still suffer and not forget about them and make sure we continue that fight. There are some things that are done with the best of intentions and actions to show solidarity. And one of those instances is posting black squares on social media. A lot of these squares had the hashtag Black Lives Matter instead of Blackout Tuesday, which actually caused more harm than good when you headed over to that specific hashtag to mine resources, quotes, other things to post. There was a sea of black boxes, which actually went against the very original mission of what these black boxes were aiming to serve. How can white people and non-black people be better about not contributing to extra harm during this time? Does it mean that we need to do more pointed research as to what we post? That was the probably barest of bare, bare minimum that you could have ever done. Like take the time, educate yourselves, be hungry to learn about this. Hey, if you really care about the black community as you are proclaiming on social media for clout or for any other reason that isn't to uplift and serve the black community, then your voice is actually suppressing ours. And that's something that people need to understand and really wrap their head around. To be a better ally for us on social media, at least, is really being someone who takes it on themselves to use their platform to uplift the community. And, I th- and what I'm really proud of right now is I'm seeing like a lot of outpour of that. And it is consistent, which is good. The people who are really committed to this cause, like, you can pick them out of a field. Like it's very obvious who is here for the long haul because this is not a 24-hour Instagram story. People need to understand that. This is the long haul. And you better be strapped in, ready for this ride, or you aren't with us. And that's all I'll say. It's the bare, the barest of minimums is to post a black square. It takes two seconds. You don't have to actually support anything. And, you know, blackout day, right? What's interesting about that is that a Tuesday affects nothing in the music industry, right? Albums drop on Fridays. All the money is made on Fridays. If you are really trying to support us, right? And I'm going to speak for hip hop, especially being in that industry, right? Especially for hip hop artists. Most of us are black, right? You guys, you glorify black violence and black trauma. You get paid off of it. I mean, how many rappers go number one and become bigger because they have legal cases going on, right? Take K the race. He blew up because he wrote a song about murdering somebody and it blew up, right? Bobby Shmurda caught a body about a week ago, right? He actually had a case and that's why he's in, he's in prison now getting out next year or whatever, right? This stuff is reality for us, but they capitalize off of it. Tupac dropped the number one album from prison. He, I think he was the first rapper to do it. They need black trauma. Like they, it's the reason why they, when Kanye was trying to get signed, right? And I'm not talking about Kanye's um, personally, how whatever he does. But when Kanye was trying to get signed, it was hard for him because Gangsta Rap was popping off, right? 50 Cent was popping off and, and the West Coast still had a lot of people. And Kanye came in there with a book bag and a polo and was like, yeah, I'm going to rap about like going to school and, and like 
life and i mean man i promise i'm so self-conscious that's why you always see me with at least one of my watches he was rapping about real life and, and real feelings as a black man that didn't line up with guns and shooting and you know what i mean he he was bucking the system in that way and it was hard for him to get a record deal because nobody took him serious as a rapper so they benefited off of off of our blood so and tears for so many years and for me that is a cop out I, I would i would have much rather than made blackout day on a friday right when your album drops when all the money starts to come in for those first week sales how about you don't work that day how about you stop everything that day when all that money's coming in, right? And then when the money does come in after that, how about you donate that to causes and, and show us receipt? Because right now, I, I don't believe it when it comes to record labels. To me, it's a ploy for them. And, um, and a lot of, like I said, a lot of big companies too, it's, it's a way to save face so you don't get criticized. And, and it's all about the dollar. It's all about maintaining that, the access to that dollar. You know, they still sign, they take poor kids from the hood and they sign them to these 360 deals. It's very predatory because it, it allows them to, to have the power in the relationship. If you're 17 and you grow up in a hood of Atlanta, right? But you got a hot song, your song went crazy on, on YouTube or SoundCloud, Spotify, and you got millions of plays, right? Now, every label's at your door trying to offer you $2 million in cash upfront for your advance. They don't tell you that this is a loan. They don't tell you that you have to recoup this money. They don't tell you that if you don't recoup this money on your first album, we can drop you, we can shelf you and not allow you to sign with other labels. They don't tell you this going in. But if I was 17 in a situation I grew up in, being on welfare and being in poverty with cardboard in my shoes, if I had a single that somebody offered me two mil for to sign, I'm not reading contracts either. I'm not, I'm not touching the contract. Two mil? Oh, no, no. We're moving out the hood, mommy. I got you, right? And they know this and they, they thrive off of that. So to me, <laughs> the black square thing, I love it for solidarity purposes for those of us who are doing it. Because I posted one too, right? Doing it to support, to raise awareness. But from the other side, I got to see it to believe it, man. I don't believe anything they say right now. And um, until I see actual progress and change from my people in that, in that field, then it's just lip service. The other thing that kind of actually bothered me was that, okay, so I actually wasn't supposed to like listen to Spotify at all because like, oh, if you listen, even to even if you try to support the black artists on Spotify, uh, because of the way that the contracts are set up or whatever, some of those artists aren't even really going to see the revenue from your stream. So just block all the streams. And I, I didn't like that. They didn't give me an option to still support my black artists. So what I personally did was I went to SoundCloud because I knew that for the artist as an individual, SoundCloud is kind of a bit of your haven. And even for those that, you know, signed up to have their profiles or their content within the SoundCloud Pro or whatever the thing, um, you know, they, they see like a higher return from that. So I spent Tuesday listening like exclusively to like black artists on SoundCloud. But moving forward, definitely, I, I feel like give, give me a way to still support my people. Don't just to completely cut me out for the campaign. I think it's really great that you brought up just so many of these resources that aren't readily accessible through Instagram. So we're seeing Donate show up at protests. We saw that an overflowing amount of phone calls, emails, voicemails, um, got people arrested in connection to George Floyd. Now I see a lot of them in connection to Breonna Taylor. A lot of posts saying how to help. So what other resources have you guys not yet seen on Instagram? Do you want to bring to light for the listeners? everything that has already been done and like broadcasted in the media and reposted and people are using that as guidelines. Like that's all great. Something that transcends so deeply for me and something that this past week I have put myself in the hot seat in a way and like really 
peeled back layers of myself in order to push this agenda forward is humanizing this topic. The Black community can cry and scream and yell all they have been doing for hundreds of years, but it isn't until our white counterparts, um, the non-Blacks, stand right there with us and walk along this fight side by side is when we're actually going to see that lasting change. And that's all I'll say. For moving forward, whether folks haven't even thought about trying to find out who is their police chief or the captain of the police station in their community. Start from there, because that's controllable. Those are people in your city where you live in through your own action and genuinely wanting to establish a relationship of any type really, then that is something you can build off of moving forward. And when we're older and we have kids, hopefully we can be able to introduce you know, our kids to either the same people or the similar person in that position, feeling confident that you know, this good person right here has my future child's safety in mind and in heart. And that is the, the, the building of a better nation, in my opinion. I think it's very important to know your role amongst all of this. It's easy to look around social media and to feel like you're not doing enough or what you're doing isn't impactful. But I, I definitely want to reiterate to people that whatever your role is, if you fully embrace that, like that is supporting the cause. You know, you have people on the front lines, but everybody can't be Martin or Malcolm, right? But you also have a bunch of people that are holding Malcolm and Martin up. You know, you also have people who are handing out supplies or making care kits, which is something I did this week, making a bunch of toiletry kits and, and taking them to a food drive on the West side, uh, finding ways that, that resonate with you and, and that you can help, man, fully, fully embrace that. If you can go speak to a high school of, of kids in, a, in an impoverished neighborhood, right, and let them know that people that look like us can do great things. I wish I had that growing up. I, luckily, I had some people who did believe in me, my mother first and foremost, so I was able to transcend my environment. But for all my friends that, that are dead and in prison right now, they didn't get that same support that I did. So they weren't as blessed. I wasn't smarter than them. I was just more blessed, right? I, I had a better chance to succeed. So even if it's donating to a women and children center or speaking to a high school of kids or like literally anything, going to a boys and girls club and volunteering your time, uh, volunteering at food drives, anything helps when, when you're, when we talk about black lives matter, like this is all black lives, right? And, and black lives of every walk of life in line with that. Man, we need we need Black Lives Matter to and people who are who are screaming this from the mountaintops. Let's also scream about Black trans people, right, and Black people in the LGBTQ community because those are Black lives too, right? These people matter just as much. And a lot of times, I, and there was I think there might have been a question about how Black women sometimes it seems like their names don't get broadcasted as much as the Black men. That's a real issue, right? Like like Black women are largely silenced in 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 this world, right? Like a lot of times they're, they're pushed to the bottom. Um, they're disrespected. They're, they're forgotten about. I've definitely made it a point to bring up these, like, I'm so confused to this day about the Sandra Bland case. It makes no sense to me that they're going to tell me she committed suicide. And, and it makes me angry. I saw the video of her getting arrested when she got arrested. Right. I saw, it makes no sense to me. When I read the Breonna Taylor story, I like, I, I felt a fire inside. It made me angry. The fact that how they went about what they did, a Tatiana Jefferson, right? Like there are so many cases, um, Corinne Gaines, there, there are so many cases where these people get kind of overshadowed. And, and, you know, part of it is because we watched George Floyd tapping on camera, right? Breonna Taylor's was a story we read about in the paper or in the news. So I get it. So I'm not ever going to take away from what, what just happened. And with George Floyd being the, at the forefront of this particular movement, right? 
in this day, in this point in time. But yeah, it, it's so important, man, to to support the Black Lives. Like, let's let's scream the women's names loud, man. Let's scream their names loud, and the the gay and the, the bisexual and the trans. Let's scream their names loud too, because they bleed the same way we bleed. And when they go into this world, they got an extra burden. Not only are they black, not only are they, you know, either male or female, and that comes with a different set of issues, but they're also in a different marginalized community that does not always get the love and support that it needs. Because all in all, man, support the black lives any way you can. If you donate a bottle of water to a, a middle school kid, that's beautiful. If you even give him a kind word, that kind word might take this kid from Southside Chicago to being the next president, right? You never know what how you can change somebody's life just by showing genuine support, no matter how large or minuscule you may think that support actually is. And uh, I'll leave it at that. Okay, that was the last question, guys. Just want to close off with saying thank you for helping me learn everything, helping me grow. I know it can be a really exhaustive, long process to have to explain our details of racism and definitely learned a lot today. So thanks for coming on here. Hopefully my listeners will be able to take something away and we'll know that after this podcast ends, after they get off their phones, after they log off, it's not political, it's not a hashtag, it's not simply being on the right side of history, it's being a human being, which is the core of all of us and a human issue. So that's all I wanted to say. Thank you so much for joining. Thank you so much. Thank you, Selena. Thank you for having us, Selena.